Welcome to the All People's Church podcast. We believe in loving God, strengthening families, and developing leaders. We are so excited for you to hear this life-changing message recorded live at one of our worship experiences. Remember to share and subscribe to this podcast and enjoy the message. We're going to be reading in Matthew chapter 17. I'm reading out of the ESV translation. If you don't have a Bible, you'll see it up there on the screen. It says this, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them, someone say led them, up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. You ever looked at the sun? You can't see anything else. You gotta wait a little bit. You gotta let your eyes readjust to what they've been exposed to. So, his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, you gotta love Peter, Lord, (laughs) it is good that we're here. It's good we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents or three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking, and behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces. They were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist, who we know has died. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these moments, these minutes that we have to share in your presence. Lord, would you come visit us tonight? We avail ourselves to you in mind and body and soul and spirit. Allow us to be present, God, to what you're doing, to what you're saying, to how you're leading. Holy Spirit, cleanse our mind tonight of the things that maybe we have filled it with and maybe the things that the world has filled it with and we ask that you cleanse it so that we could hear you without distraction, without hindrance, that we would lean in, press in, give us eyes to see and ears to hear as always. Be the teacher and allow me to facilitate what you want to say. Help us to have a good time in your presence. Let there be joy present in this house, and even for those watching or listening. In Jesus' name I pray, and all God's people said, amen, 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 amen. Now, it's been a minute, it's been a while since we've been in the Gospel of Matthew, so I'd like to just do a quick little recap, and we'll fly, we'll kind of just fly through this, if that's all right with you. Um, And so tonight, we're going to talk about the transfiguration. Obviously, I'm titling this Glimpses of Glory. Glimpses of Glory. We'll come back to that, but let's just do a quick little recap of the Gospel of Matthew. Um, How many know the author of the Gospel of Matthew? Matthew, you're very good. All right, we're doing good so far. Matthew was who? A tax collector turned into a follower of Jesus when Jesus invited him to follow him. Remember that? And so he is one of the 12. The date of the Gospel of Matthew is somewhere between 50 to 60 
AD, and the primary audience that Matthew is fixated upon is the Jewish audience. He is really after the Jewish audience, um, and, and he wants the Jewish audience to see that Jesus doesn't just appear out of nowhere, but he, he is connected to the Old Testament. So he, he ties his lineage all the way back, right? And we see even move through the line of David, and so that in Jesus, Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled. In fact, in chapters 1 to 3, that's what Matthew focuses on. Matthew's whole focus in, through chapters 1 to 3 is, is the connection that Jesus has to the Old Testament. Even in Jesus' birth, we see the fulfillment of prophecy out of Isaiah 60, Micah 4, Isaiah 7, of Jesus being born by a virgin, the, uh, the mag magi coming to visit him, uh, Jesus going to Egypt and then, and then coming out of Egypt. All of this was prophecy in the Old Testament that Matthew was telling his audience, this Jewish man named Jesus fulfills. And so he is the Messiah. Right, And so even the prophecy of calling him Emmanuel, his name shall be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Right, So in chapters 4 to 7, this is where Jesus, right after his baptism, begins to announce the kingdom of God. It says wherever Jesus went, he proclaimed the kingdom of God. We know the Sermon on the Mount, which is between chapters 5 to 7. Jesus' whole point is, hey, how can we now live in the kingdom? How do we learn the culture of the kingdom? That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about, right? Because it comes right after Jesus announces the kingdom. So how many know if Jesus has just announced that there is a different realm available to humanity, then you got to know how to live in that realm. And so that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about, is how do we live in the kingdom? And you know that Jesus presents um, commandments and ideas that are completely upside down from the culture and traditions, right? You have heard it said, but I say to you, Chapters 8 to 10 is where Jesus brings the kingdom into the lives of people. So, so you see what Matthew does, connects it to the Old Testament, announces the kingdom, here's how you live in the kingdom, and then Jesus takes this concept, this idea, principles, and then he begins to translate it into the power that's actually available in the kingdom. And so he brings the kingdom into the lives of people. Remember, he sends the 12 out. Right, And then we know of so many healings that take place and of how Jesus brings kingdom. And we, we, you know, we, if, you, if, you, if you are new to the Wednesday night, to the, to the study of the Gospel of Matthew, you can go back to our older sessions where we delve deeply into the kingdom of God and the definition of that. But very basically, it means what? The rule and the reign of God. So what does it mean for the rule and the reign of God to enter the lives of people? That's what we see in 8 to 10. And what do we see? We see the leper being healed. We see the centurion servant being healed. We see the sick mother. We see Jesus walking on the stormy seas and him calming them down. We see the demonized men be delivered. We see the paralyzed men be healed. We see the dead girl and the sick woman be healed. We see the two blind men, the mute men, and we obviously see their Matthew's called to follow Jesus. So you see how the rule and the reign, when it gets brought into the lives of people, there's power. There's power. And so this is a glimpse that Jesus gives to us. Matthew tells us in chapters 11 to 13, uh, th this, is a, this is kind of the chapters where we see different responses to Jesus, right? Not everybody responds the same way to Jesus. Hello? Right? Um, and so we have different responses. We have Jesus is the Messiah. We have people saying, is he the Messiah? Remember John sends his disciples, find out if he really is the one. And then we have other people who like the Pharisees basically saying he's not the Messiah. He's not the Messiah. And then in, in chapter 13, we see all these parables of the kingdom that Jesus presents. Now, this is kind of where we are in the middle of what we're in the middle of. In between chapters 14 and 20, we see different expectations about the Messiah. So if God's going to send the Messiah, if the Messiah is here, people have assumptions. You have assumptions about God. Did you know that? Some are founded in his word and others aren't. And so the greatest thing we can do is align our assumptions of God with his word because God is committed not to backing up your assumptions. God is committed to backing up his word. We're doing good. This is, that's, that was a good word right there. I felt, I might just, yeah, I felt something there. Okay. And so there's different expectations 
that people have of the Messiah, we have Jewish expectations, which were that the Messiah would come and overthrow Rome, start some sort of revolution. We had non-Jewish expectations of the Messiah. We had even Peter and the disciples had different expectations. Remember, Jesus sits them down and says, well, who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? Right? And in the middle of that, in, in chapter 16, we talked about where G- Peter in one moment has this incredible revelation and in the other, Jesus calls him Satan and calls him a hindrance because there's true, two portrayals of the Messiah. Is he going to be the suffering servant out of Isaiah or is he going to be the victorious king out of the Psalms? Right? How many know a victorious king is easier to follow than a suffering servant? <laughs> and yet Jesus says, no, 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 before you get the victorious king, you have to get the, the suffering servant. And so we are in chapter 17 tonight. Was that a good recap? All right. So if you're new to Wednesday night, we do things slow. As you can tell, we're only in chapter 17, and it's been, how long has it been? I think we started in 2020. 2021? We started in 2021. Okay, two years. Two more years, and we'll be done. Praise God. Amen? Amen? Who knows? Maybe we'll be preaching the ascension, and Jesus will come down. (laughs) Wouldn't that be funny? I think so. I think God has a sense of humor like that. Okay, so... We're getting into chapter 17, and we kind of have read the text, but how many know that um, in life, there come moments that are pivotal moments? In life, we all have had moments that are pivotal, meaning they cause us to reevaluate the direction we're heading and to consider an alternative direction. And to pivot would mean to recognize that I now need to change directions, and I do. I pivot. So in life, you're you're actually not going to be able to progress beyond your ability to pivot. How many know in life, things just happen sometimes? And the people who handle surprises the best are people who have the ability to pivot. When you um, graduated high school and, and maybe you, you, you were looking and considering post-education, uh, whether college or university, or maybe you were getting a job right away, you had to pivot. If you got married, you had to pivot. If you had children, you had to pivot. There come moments in our life where we are forced to pivot. In this, in this text that we're reading tonight, there is a moment and an encounter that the disciples have with Jesus that I think is a pivotal moment. Now here's the, things, here's the thing about pivotal moments is, is you can't live a life on a pivot. Right? You, you ever watch basketball? Right? They, in basketball, they teach you about the pivot. The pivot, they call this the pivot foot, that, that you can move it and, and you can use it to your advantage and to throw off your opponent and change direction. But you can't stay at a pivot. You, you gotta move. And so this is one of those moments that, that I think is a pivotal moment for the disciples and, and it, it is designed, I think, by God, by Jesus to cause them to shift in a new direction, and and maybe reach a new depth of understanding who Jesus is. Because that's the point. The point of great revelation, right, is for us to chew it long enough to the point that it becomes practical so that the revelation leads to transformation. Right? Like, Like, if revelation is only up here, then it's not going to do you any good. At some point, it has to translate into life. At some point, you have to say, how does that change this? So any experiences we have with God, with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, 
we have to ask, okay, how does this, how does that now change this? How does what I know about God now change how I live life? And, and if we don't slow down to ask that question, then we are going to waste the revelation and the information that God gives us. Hello? So this is, this is one of those moments. So what happens? It says after six days. After six days. What came after the sixth day? The day of rest. This is a very interesting, interesting text because right before this, Jesus is talking to them about his death and, and he, begins to, he begins to say something very interesting where he says, hey, um, I, I say this to you. And what he says is this. He says, um, truly, truly, there are some here who will not die until they have seen me in my kingdom, and other translations say, in my glory. Now, some people struggle with that text because they say, hey, listen, some of the disciples, the disciples are all dead, and Jesus still has not come back. And so what is this, what is this talking about? If, if the disciples of Jesus are dead, then what is this talking about? Well, listen, it says, after six days, Jesus took with him, who? Peter and James and John. Okay, so he says in verse, in verse, let me read this for you, in verse 28 of chapter 16, that there are some standing here who are not going to taste death until they see the Son of Man come in his glory or come in his kingdom, which is another way to say come in his rule and reign. And then what happens next? He takes some. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man in his glory. And then he takes some. Right. You with me? He, he does not take the 12. What does he do? It's, 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 he, says, he says he takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain by themselves. By themselves. And this Matthew is making a point. He's emphasizing by reminding us that they were by themselves, that the 12 were not with them. Jesus says, some of you will not die. And then he takes some up a mountain. Up a mountain. And then it says, it says this, it says this. It says, and he led them up. He led them up. He spends six days with the disciples, the 12. And then the next day he takes three up a mountain. Jesus leads Peter, James, and John up a mountain. Why not take all the 12? Right? Was it, was it like a small path Jesus, you know, uh, that Jesus had to travel through that, that 12 couldn't maybe fit the road? Was there a bridge that Jesus had to cross that couldn't handle the weight of 12? Why only take three? Yeah, they were his close disciples. Some could say, yeah. He wanted them to experience something. Yeah. Now, this is an interesting, an interesting story, an interesting text. Um, number one, the fact that he doesn't take all of the 12, um, he only takes some. And it's on the mountain where Peter, James, and John see Jesus' glory. Jesus has 12 disciples, but he only takes three up to a mountain to see his glory. And what I love about this is it says, it says Jesus led them up. Jesus didn't push them up a mountain. Jesus didn't pull them up a mountain. Jesus led them up a mountain. Jesus led them up a mountain. Here's what discipleship looks like. And when we, see, when we study the life of Jesus and we, and we have those moments where Jesus invites others to follow him, here's, here's what it looks like. Jesus has this moment with an individual or individuals and he utters these words, follow me. And then here's what Jesus does. And then, and then you're here and, and you have a decision to make. Let this guy be an idea 
that I kind of just put up here and I continue living my life. Or I recognize that what I have encountered, right? What I have encountered is too big of a thing not to change my worldview. And so I have the decision, do I continue life as I know life to be? Or do I go after the one who said, follow me? And discipleship is, oh, okay. Follow me. Jesus goes walking. Oh, okay. Wait up. And so Jesus goes, Jesus goes, follow me. And it's as if he, if he, it's as if he expects you to follow him. Isn't that funny? Jesus goes, follow me, and starts walking, and it's as if he expects you to follow. Yeah, that, that, that's ex- exactly, exactly what Jesus expects. That you will come and follow him. Right. Amen. And so, and so, and so, what Matthew is hinting at is Jesus doesn't push them up a mountain. Jesus doesn't pull, up, pull them up a, up a mountain. It's almost as if Matthew is, is, without saying it, is telling us there was an invitation. Yeah. Peter, James, and John, I'm going, coming up a mountain. Follow me. And, and I could imagine them and the 12, which would have been the seven, I guess, because they're three. And they're interacting, and they would have had to leave the seven. The nine. My math is off. Thank you for that. They they would have had to leave the nine to follow the one. Right? (laughs) They. Hey, what about them? Peter, James, and John. I'm going up a mountain, follow me. But, but how, come, how, come they, how come the rest aren't, what about, how about, remember Peter at the end of, at the, end of at the end of the gospel where Jesus finally corrects him, restores him and, and tells him, hey, here's how you're gonna die. And then he says, but what about John? You don't think that the three would have done that? What about what about them? Well, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking to you. Peter, James, and John, I'm going up a mountain. Come follow me. And he led them, meaning they followed him. Right? If you're being led, it means you're a follower. If you're leading, it means someone else is doing the following. Right? And, and, and Christian leaders are only as good as their following. If if we want to become leaders, not like the world, but leaders who are followers of Jesus, our leading is only as good as our following. Our leading is only as good as our ability to follow. That's why Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Meaning, hey, my leading is only as good as my following. And so if I follow Christ, then you can follow me. So he leads them up a mountain, doesn't push them up a mountain, and it's, and it's three of the 12, right? So Jesus chose 12 disciples. You remember this? Jesus prays, goes up a mountain, prays, and he chooses the 12. He finalizes the 12. So he sets apart 12 from everyone else. Amen. But here, he sets apart three from the 12. Did you catch that? The three were part of the 12, but they're also set apart from the 12. They're, They're part of the 12, but they're set apart from the 12. They're not better than the 12, they're just different. Hello? So, so that's why you can be part of the church. And yet you can be set apart within the church for a specific use. 
Because it's one body but many members. Right? And so I'm set apart to do what I'm set apart to do, but you're set apart to do what you're set apart to do. They're part of the 12, but they're set apart from the 12. It doesn't make them better, it makes them different. Now watch this. He was transfigured. Who's he? Right. So Jesus is transfigured. We're going to get into this This. In just a second, before them, his face shone like the sun. Literally, the word there is like a beam of sunlight. And his clothes become white as light. So they see Jesus for who Jesus is. But only because they were willing to be set apart. Only because they were willing to be separate from the 12, set apart. The only reason they see Jesus in his glory is because of the separation. Separation, separation, separation. See, when we follow Jesus, the beauty is that Jesus not only calls us to himself, but he calls us apart from other things. You, you can't be joined to one thing and not be separated from others. Case in point, your, when you get married, your relationship with your spouse changes your relationship with everyone else. Talk back to me if you can. If it doesn't change your relationship with everyone else, you've misunderstood the relationship of your marriage. See, there's only two covenants in the New Testament. There's many covenants in the Old Testament. Abrahamic, Noahic, Mosaic, right? There's There's only two covenants in the New Testament. What are they? The one God makes with us. And, 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 and the other is the one the husband and the, and the wife make with each other. Those are the only two covenants in the New Testament. Did you know that? So if, if you enter a relationship where you covenant with somebody, how many know that changes all of the relationships? By the same token... When you enter a relationship with God, which is the covenant relationship, it changes your relationship with everything else. And if it doesn't, then there's a massive question mark that you now have to solve and answer and ask why. So you have to figure that on your own. I can't figure that for you up here. But what's my point? My point is they're only able to see Jesus in his glory because they were willing to be set apart. And if you're not willing to be set apart, there are things about God and about yourself that you will not enter into because you were scared of what you would leave behind. But what about the rest of them? See, anytime God calls us to a higher place, there's always things we got to leave behind. Always. How many know you go hike up a mountain, you can't take everything you own? You know what I mean? The Bible says that Jesus is able to perform this miracle for, for Peter and the other fishermen, and they catch fish they've never seen in their whole life of being fishermen and the Bible says that Jesus says follow me and the Bible lets us know that they left everything to follow him because there are some things you can't take on this journey because I'm setting you apart you with me I'm setting you apart I'm setting you apart so what do you have to leave behind in order to go hey no actually I'm going to follow Jesus where he's leading me What do you have to leave behind? What do you, what do you, what do you have to leave behind? They saw Jesus be transformed. See, everybody wants to be different. Nobody wants to be set apart. 
Because being set apart has a cost. So, so look at what we do to, be set dif- to, to, to stand out and to be different. We, we change our clothing, right? We change how we talk. We, we change the outer ex- experience that people have with us because we want to stand out. We want to be different. And yet being set apart doesn't really have to do with our outer, outer appearance. It has to do with our inner So you're set apart here first. You're separated here first. Before you see it outside. Right? And that's the scary part, right? Because this is what the Bible says, hey, uh, many are called, but few are chosen. The 12 are called, but three got chosen. That's not fair. Take it up with God. <laughs> Take it up with God. See, see, you gotta ask your question, is, is being, you gotta ask yourself a question, is being called enough? Do I wanna settle for being called when God is inviting me into being chosen? Do I wanna stay in the valley when God is inviting me up the mountain? Do, do I, do I want to stay with the nine or will I go after the one? Will you go after the one? That's the question. Will you go after the one? Or will you chase the nine? Because there's comfort in the nine. There's familiarity in the nine. They're just like me, the nine. I'm not going to sweat with the nine. But following Jesus up a mountain, yeah, there might be some sweat involved. There might be some effort involved. Right? It's a journey. It's a journey. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, think, I think if Jesus did that for some of us, we'd go, hey, is there a chairlift that could take us straight up there, man? Because I, I'd rather not, you know? Walk all that way. But the beauty is they, they would have forfeited seeing Jesus for who he was. Had they stuck with the nine. Hey, hey, what have you forfeited to stay with the nine? What have you forfeited? What... What did God have waiting for you? But it couldn't get to you because you stuck with the nine. And the nine could be representation of so many different things. It could be a representation of of an idea. It could be a representation of of, of friends and and family, of, of, of social norms that you have attached yourself to of timelines and deadlines that you have given to God? Right? So, so everybody wants to, to be different, but man, being set apart sometimes involves being torn apart. And if you don't know what I mean when I say that, you haven't been following Jesus long enough. That's why, that's why Paul had to say, I, I, I do the things I don't want to do and I and I don't do the things I want to do. I, I'm being torn apart because I'm set apart. And so each of you in this room and those of you watching online, you have inclinations, you have emotions, you have feelings, attachments that all want to keep you with the nine. Keep you at the bottom of the mountain. I tell you that the mountaintop is only reserved for the special. Hello? How are we doing? Have I made my point? I should move on. Okay. So, now, even in being set apart, how many know if you want to be set apart, it means you got to be led? Right? Because, because callings... They, they look pleasing. 
until you realize that getting there means crushing some appetites that you're attached to. Some appetites that you've told yourself you can't do without. Nobody here? All right. So even in being set apart, we have to be led. Because you don't set yourself apart, God sets you apart. Peter, James, and John, uh, hey, they didn't raise their hand and vote themselves up the mountain. Jesus chose them. So in case, you've, in case you're wondering when your time will come, well, let me ask you a question. Are you ready for Jesus to choose you? You say, what does it mean to be ready? Well, what it means to be ready is, is how, how is the speed of your obedience? See, maturity in discipleship means the speed of my obedience increases. Are we doing okay? This isn't even part of my notes, but I'm just letting the Holy Spirit flow here. It means, the speed of, it means the speed of my obedience. How fast and quickly do you listen to the Lord? I want to mature. I want to grow. I want what God has for me. How fast do you listen to him? Or, or do you have to wait and ponder? I don't know. I don't know if it's the Lord. Or, or sometimes we know it's God. But, but we go, I don't think I'm ready to make that decision yet. Well, then you're not ready to be called. You're not ready to be set apart. How quickly you obey him reveals whether or not you're ready. Right? Because how many know God doesn't want to be waiting when he says, follow me. The, the expectation is, I say, follow me, and you come. And it's not so much about where, and what are we going to encounter, and what are these people going to say, and, and how is it going to look for my reputation, and, and what if the people I go to school with find out I'm a Jesus follower, and they're going to criticize me, and, and the people I work with, and maybe my extended family, and there's no room for those questions. Not that, not that those questions maybe don't, don't matter, but what is important, what Jesus sets precedence on is how quickly you'll come running after him. And you'll figure the rest along the way. Isn't that a beauty, beautiful thing about a journey? Is you, you, you'll figure it along the way Abraham go travel to this land and okay <laughs> I guess I'll have to figure it along the way here's what you'll never have to figure along the way if he's with you you'll, you'll never have to wonder ponder question or doubt is he with me is he still with me Because the Bible says he'll never leave you nor forsake you. And he said to his disciples, don't worry, wherever you go, I will be with you until the end of the age. Meaning you cannot escape my presence. See, the psalmist says, even when I make my bed in hell, he's there with me. But have you, have you noticed that the psalmist says, it's, it's when I make my bed in hell? Even when you are the reason you're in hell, there he is with you. So even if you made a poor decision and you are suffering now the consequence of your poor decision, God does not say, because you caused this, I will forsake you. I'll let you suffer the consequences, but make no mistake, my presence will always be with you. I'm close to the brokenhearted, even if you're the one responsible for breaking your heart. That's God. He, he is the only one qualified to lead you. Man, I feel the presence of God. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white. This, this word transfigured is the word metamorpho. 
Which where, what, 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 what word do you think we get from there? Metamorphosis, yeah. It, it means to change, to transform the essential nature of something. It, it says his, his face shone like the sun, a beam of light, and his clothes became white as light. Jesus became on the outside what he was on the inside. All glory. You notice his face shines first and then his clothes change color. It's not that, it's not that his clothes changed and then he changed. He changed, and then what was touching him changed. This is why it's so powerful, because when, when the voice of the Father speaks and says, hey, this is, this is my beloved son, it says all of the three disciples, they fall to their face in fear, and Jesus comes and, and he touches them. And he says, fear not. Fear not. Fear not. I just want to stay close enough for Jesus to touch me. That's, I, would just, I just want to be that close that, that Jesus doesn't have to go looking, but I'm right there, and he can, he can, he can touch me. It's, it's the same Jesus, I want you to catch this, it's the same Jesus at the bottom of the mountain that the 12 encounter, and yet it's a different Jesus. <laughs> he's, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He, he, it's the same Jesus that left the nine. But it's also a different Jesus that is encountering the three. What, what does that mean? It means there's levels to this. There's, there's levels to our intimacy. I, I've taught you this before, but I think it's bear, it bears repeating. Um, uh, you'll never be able to increase your proximity to God. He's always with you. He lives inside of you. He can't get any closer. But you will be able to increase your intimacy with God. Right? And that's why married couples can sleep together in the same bed. But it's through years of doing that together that their intimacy increases. Their proximity doesn't. Talk back to me if you're getting what I'm saying. Your proximity cannot increase, but your intimacy can. And so it's the same Jesus, but it's not. It's not the same Jesus. I really believe how you see Jesus varies and depends on how, how on your ability to be led by him. Because you'll, you'll only be able to see Jesus in a greater and deeper way if you allow him to lead you there. Because the reality is if God wants to show you more of him, it's him that's doing the showing. You can't force the hand of God. So either he chooses to reveal himself to you or he doesn't. And that's predicated upon our ability to follow him. How are we doing all right? Are we doing all right? All right, now what happens next? And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah. This is very interesting. Two prominent figures of the Old Testament show up. Now, now this is, this is, this is fascinating. They, they're taken to a higher place, a place where they're about to see Jesus in a greater and deeper way, in, in a place where they're about to encounter Jesus like they've never encountered Jesus before. In fact, if you read, if you read Mark's account, Mark highlights the fact that this, this was something they've never seen. Now remember, Mark gets his testimony from Peter. And so, and so, Peter, Mark, John, or Peter, James, and John are up there encountering Jesus in a way they've never encountered Jesus before. And now shows up Moses and Elijah. Moses represents the law. Moses represents the Exodus. Moses represents the salvation moment for the Israelites. Because the Exodus was their salvation. The Exodus was their salvation. So, so Moses represents who God has been to Israel. Elijah, we know, represents the prophets. But not only does Elijah represents, represent the prophets, he, Elijah also represents what is to come. Because Elijah was supposed to come and, and prepare the way for the Messiah. And people thought that was going to be Elijah for real. It turned out to be John the Baptist. 
But Elijah represents, represents future, what, what God is going to do. Moses represents what God has done, the law, the prophets. Jesus says, I came not to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And who shows up on this mount of glory with the two men representing the law and the prophets? What God has done, what God will do, brought together for the three disciples and what God is doing now. See, see, we read the Bible past tense, but they're encountering it in the present. That's why they say to, they say to Jesus, wasn't Elijah supposed to come? Isn't he gonna come? And Jesus has to say to them, yeah, he will, but he's already come. So the future, the past, and it's Jesus representing God in the present, what God is doing now. Jesus is always easier to follow when you recognize that he's in the now. That's why Jesus says, hey, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has its worries of its own. Follow me today. Follow me now. Oh, I don't know what I'm going to do when, when this happens, when I graduate or when I get this job or when I get buried, married or when I have kids or when I get buried. Well, that's, you, you're going to be with him. Um, I wonder if my commitment to Jesus will suffer. You ever ask yourself that question? And yet, and yet, and yet, you might have good intentions with asking that question. Jesus is not concerned with how you're going to follow him tomorrow. He's concerned with how you're going to follow him today. Because today is what builds consistency. Not the idea of tomorrow. I don't know about you, but the idea of tomorrow can be very discouraging because I don't know if I'm ready for tomorrow. I don't, I don't know what version of me I'm going to get tomorrow. You know what I mean? Like when I wake up, I don't know what me I'm going to get. You go, how many versions are there? Well, you, I got problems. I don't know what version I'm going to get. Am I going to get the tired, the grouchy, the, you know, the one who's ready to cuss everybody out in traffic today? Like which version am I going to get tomorrow? I don't know. So, so that's intimidating. What version am I going to get when I get married, when I have kids, when, when life throws curveballs? What version? See, we're not designed to follow Jesus like that. We're designed to, to submit to him today. So, so whatever version of you exists right now, submit it. Because that's all the power you have. <laughs> you, you don't have the power and the ability to submit a future version of yourself. Right? Okay, so Peter somehow, now we don't even have time to get into this, but because Peter recognizes this is Moses and Elijah. Right? Bible scholars, explain that one. <laughs> How does Peter know? Peter recognizes, hey, this is Moses and Elijah, and, and, and Peter, and Peter, and Peter, Peter says to Jesus, Peter, Peter says to Jesus, Jesus, Jesus isn't even talking to Peter, and, and Peter says to Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah, and hey, you, get, you get the picture, right? Jesus is shining in his glory. Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus, you know, uh, great plans and stuff like that, and, uh, and Peter, you, you met, hey, Jesus, this, this, is, this is really great. This is, this is wonderful. I'm so glad you brought us here. Look, Jesus has not invited Peter into the conversation. Right? But Peter goes, oh, hey, hey, Jesus. It's, it's, look what it says. Lord, it, it, it is good that we are here. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Peter, I, I brought you up here because I really needed you, bro. That's why, that's why I brought you up here. He says, it's, it's really good that we're here. Uh, oh, okay, Peter, like, okay, nobody asked you, but all right. He goes, he goes, because Peter doesn't know when to shut up, right? Peter doesn't, Peter doesn't know, know when, to, when to shut up. Um, hey, hey, knowing when to shut up is, is, 
is a real good sign of spiritual maturity. Too harsh? No, knowing when to zip it. Knowing you haven't been invited into this conversation. A- anybody, older than, anybody older than 50 knows what I'm talking about. Because you grew up in a time where, hey, grown folk are talking. <laughs> Hello? When I was young and my parents are having a discussion, I didn't, I didn't just show up. Hey, let me just, uh, here's what I think you should do. You know what I mean? Like, let me tell you what. Nobody asked for that. When, when, when grown folk were talking, hey, grown-ups are talking here. Go play with your Barbie. Not that I play with Barbie. That was just the first thing that came out to me. That's not uh, G.I. Joe or whatever. <laughs> um, hey, Peter, nobody invited you. This, this is grown folk talking. This is the Messiah talking with Moses and Elijah Hey, be quiet. No, no when to zip it. Peter goes, hey, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's good that we're here. Um, if you wish, if you wish, Jesus, I, I, I'll make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. All right? This word here is, is tabernacle. We, we don't even have time to delve into this because Jesus came to abolish the tabernacle, not to set up tabernacles, but... Man, there's, there's a sermon there, and we don't have time for it. But he says, I'll, make, I'll, make, I'll set up three tabernacles. I'll set up three tents, uh, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Where did, where did Peter get these tents? You know what I mean? I always carry these. You never know when you got to. Peter goes, hey, if you, if you wish. And it's like, Peter, nobody asked you, bro. Nobody Nobody asked. Now, you got to ask the question, why does Peter want to set up three tents? Now, now realistically, I know we're, we're having fun because it's good to have fun uh, on a Wednesday night, uh, but realistically, Peter probably expected, hey, this is, a, this is a tall mountain. This is a high mountain. There's debates on what mountain this is, but, but this is a high mountain, and, and so if we're going to make this journey all the way up, then we're not going to come down the same time, the same day. We're we're going to probably set up camp, rest a night, then come back down. So Peter is carrying three tents. Right? Peter is carrying, Peter is carrying tents and, and I, I'm guessing one for Jesus and one for himself and maybe uh, James and John because they're brothers, they would share one and that's probably why he had the tents. But, but why does Peter, seeing, seeing Moses, Elijah, and Jesus in his glory, why does he want to set up a tent? Why? why? Maybe, maybe it's because Maybe it's because they're tired. Maybe, maybe it's because he, he wants, maybe he wants to cherish this moment as long as he can. Maybe, maybe he wants this moment to last because it's better up here than it was down there. It's better. It's better up here. It's, where, it's just the three of us. It's uh, it's quieter. Judas, Judas, Judas isn't here, and yeah, you got to worry about somebody stealing from you. And it's uh, and, and and we we can we can have all the attention. We can we can have you isolated to ourselves. This this is this is this is good. This is. See, Peter's never encountered glory before. Right? Now, let me, let me talk a little bit about glory because this is, this, is, this is important. This is... Glory is not meant to be lived in. At least for now. On, on this side of eternity... Glory, and there's my soft music, and I got to close now, so <laughs> shut me down. Glory is not meant to be lived in. On this side of eternity, glory is not meant to be lived in. Glory is only meant to be experienced in glimpses. Moses says, I want to see your glory. And now, if you see my glory, Moses, you'll die. 
So I'm gonna hide you behind a rock and I'll cover you with my hand and, and my glory will pass by. And you'll get a glimpse of it. See, glory is not meant to be lived in. Glory is to be experienced in glimpses. In glimpses. In glimpses. I, I, I am where I am today because I have experienced the glory of God in glimpses. I've never been able to live there. I've never been able to remain there, but I can tell you moments in my life that were pivotal where God's glory went knocked me to the ground in his presence but it didn't last forever I had to get up I had to keep going so, so, so glimpses we, we, only, we, only, we only get glimpses we, 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 we like to say it and it's because it's in the Bible we, we like to say it we, we go from glory to glory we say that don't we we go from glory to glory in, in, in reality I, I, think, I think it's actually said like this glory to glory to glory the two is much longer than the glory the glory is short lived <laughs> glory is short lived and I think this is why Peter tries to protect this moment can I set up three tents for you guys for you Jesus for, for Moses for Elijah I've never, I've never experienced this kind of phenomenon before glory is short lived it took Jesus six hours to die but he was raised in a moment Did you hear what I just said? It took him six hours hanging on the cross to die. And he was resurrected in a moment. Glory is short-lived. Glory comes in glimpses. Think about Lazarus. He's dead four days. And he's brought back to life with three words. Come out, Lazarus. <laughs> See, glory is, glory is short-lived. It's not glory to glory. It's glory to glory to glory. And the Bible says that in, that, that in the middle of Peter talking, because Peter doesn't know when to be quiet, and so in the middle of Peter talking, the Bible says that, that there comes from the sound, this comes from a voice, from a cloud that overshadows them because the father shows up and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Now, 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 now watch this, watch this, because, because there are six men on that hill. Peter, James, John, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And when the Father shows up, he endorses only one. The Father's endorsement is Jesus. The Father only endorses Jesus. And it says the Bible, the Bible says the disciples fall on their, on their face in fear. And Jesus comes to them and he touches them. He says, have no fear. And, and then when they lifted up their eyes, uh, they lifted up their eyes and they, they saw no one but Jesus. They, they saw only one. They, they, they saw no one, sorry, but Jesus only. They saw Jesus only. See, experiences with God, encounters with, with his weighty presence are, are not to be lived in. They, they, they're to be lived out of. If, if, we, if we constantly live there, we'll never get anything done. But if we live from there, we'll have the power to get everything done. Did you hear what I said? We don't, we don't live there. We, 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 if, you, if you spend all your time praying, 
Not that prayer is bad. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. If you spend all your time praying, it must, be, it must mean that somewhere you believe God works for you. That's why you don't have to ever leave your house, share the faith, do work, serve, love your neighbor. Because you could just be locked up in your house, pray all the time, because God works for you. No. You don't, you don't live in the prayer closet. You can live out from the prayer closet. You can be empowered out of that place. But you don't live there. Because God doesn't work for you, you work for God. And if prayer doesn't push you into action, you've done it wrong. Hello? If, if you think prayer is only supposed to move God and not you, you don't understand prayer. <laughs> How are we doing? I'm having a good time and we're, just, we're ending. And... See, prayer is about creating a rhythm in our life. That's why Paul says pray without ceasing. The, the idea isn't lock yourself in a closet and just constantly make intercession. The idea is your life becomes a rhythm where you're constantly aware of the presence of God and you can go in and out and in and out and you can do both things at once. And if you don't believe you can do both things at once, how many of you drive? You ever arrive to your destination sometimes not knowing how you got there? Because you know how to do two things at once. Let me use a negative example. Guarantee some of you, either right now or, or maybe in the past or for sure in the future, have something you worry about. You notice when you have something you worry about, you're doing all the things you need to do, but you're still worrying. You're worrying without ceasing. Now replace that with prayer and you know what it means to pray without ceasing. This is good teaching. I, I'm having a good time. So, so what, is, what is the point? What is the point of them lifting their eyes and seeing no one but Jesus only? What is the point? The point is this. Connection to God cannot be limited to a place or to a time, but connection to God is limited to a person. It's, it's, limited, it's limited to, to Jesus. There's six people and there's only one the Father endorses. It's Jesus. Your worship experience is only as good as the clarity you get of Jesus. If, if your, see, because if, if your worship experience doesn't give you greater clarity of Jesus, it's no good. It's only as good as your ability to see him in a greater way, in a greater light, in a way you didn't see him before. You, you, you didn't encounter him like this. It's, it's, it's greater revelation of him. And so we use, we use all sorts of different measurements, don't we? To determine what? The encounter of, um, the encounter with, with the Bible, we, the encounter with prayer, the encounter with worship. We, we use all sorts of measurements like, like breakthrough. Will I get the breakthrough? If I get the breakthrough, then the worship experience was good. Will I get the promotion? If I get the promotion, then the worship experience was good. My time in prayer was good. My time reading the Bible was good. We have all these measurements, breakthrough, promotion, health, the girl, the guy, wealth, all these things that we go, hey, here are the measurements that'll let me know my encounter with him was good. And I would argue all those things are secondary. And the question that the father would ask of us is, have you seen my son? Have you seen my son? Have you seen his glory? Does he outshine everything else? Have you seen my son? That's the question. 
That's why David says, I have, I have set the Lord always before me. Have you seen my son? That's the question. That's the question. That's the measurement. Have you seen him for who he is? And only then, ladies and gentlemen, will you encounter the love, the mercy, the grace, the holiness, the purity that pours out from him. Have you seen my son? Do you love him more? Do you cherish him more? Do you, do you come when he beckons your name? Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for these moments. God, let us see your son. Let us see your son, the treasure of all nations, your glory. Let us see your son. God, I ask that that would be a reality in each and every single person in this room, myself included, and those watching and listening, that you would allow us to see glimpses of your glory and that we would be changed, transformed, and never the same. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.